it's interesting that some of what they're doing is actually heaping more shame onto each other. Yeah. And it, it's labeling. It's more and more labeling, more and more labeling. Yes. Labeling. And, and the labeling just keeps... What happens to me, what happens in my estimation is the person might not have thought what they shared was awkward, but if a good friend says it's awkward, they then receive it and identify with it. And now if you do that often enough, they're walking around feeling awkward, self-identifying as awkward, and now not being authentic and real in relationships. Welcome to Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen anderson Abril here with my co-host, Pastor Elliot Anderson. And Love and Life is your place to hear conversations grounded in psych research, psychotherapy, and biblical truth to help us thrive in love and life. All right. So we love Key and Peele. I've seen a lot of their work and it's always hysterical. And it's also very poignant. It has a commentary on life. That's what comedians do. They point out some of the bizarre and maybe sometimes not so helpful ways of living that our culture currently experiences. Okay, Elliot, let's listen to this clip from Key and Peele before we talk about it. I know I'm in the minority here, but I don't really like the Christopher Nolan Batman movies. I don't, I really just feel like they're overrated. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's um, that, that's just an opinion, you see. That's why I prefaced it by saying, I know I'm in the minority. You know what? No, no, not really. It's not awkward, at least not until you said awkward. Now it's awkward because of what you said. Anyway. Anyway what? Anyway what? Really, because when you say anyway, then you have to follow it up with an actual contribution to the conversation we're having. Yikes. No, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. There's no yikes, and the reason why there's no yikes is because there's nothing scary about this situation, okay? It's a very low-stakes situation. All right. So I'm just curious, although I cracked up and we enjoyed it and we went back and forth with the text when you sent me that clip, what really stuck out to you as to why this term, which we've noticed your kids, so my nieces and nephews, this whole, that's awkward, kind of where do you think that that is coming from? Why it's funny, obviously, is because Key and Peele are pointing out with their comedic wit that there's something there's something funny about what's going on with some of the discourse in, in interpersonal relationships. And they pointed out, what struck you? Yeah, a couple of things. One, we talk about regulation a lot on this program. And so I use Key and Peele as regulation. I, okay. I counsel a lot of really intense, difficult scenarios. Yeah. And so I've had a week with a couple rape victims and things that are really difficult. And so when I know I'm going through that part of my regulation, Mm -hmm. and yes, God's wired me to be a crisis therapist, so I'm not moaning about it or whining, Mm -hmm. but I know I need to laugh. Right. Because rape counseling sessions aren't funny. Right. And so I go to Key and Peele. They're one of my standard guys for those quick little clips. It's a coping mechanism, self-care for you to get a release of that the secondary trauma you experience because exactly. counselors do that compassion fatigue that's possible mm-hmm. where you just can't take anymore, but God's wired you that way, which praise God. But also he's let you know, as we teach in our counseling instruction courses, that self-care is super important. And for you, that laughter brings back the joy in life in the, in the midst of very dark, dark, dark experiences. Absolutely. So I just signed, we're, 
we try to practice what we preach here at yeah. Dr. Karen and Pastor Elliot. So I'm just letting the <laughs> listeners know laughter is a huge way to regulate, get back in your yeah. balance, your window of tolerance, the trauma experts call it. Mm-hmm. And so I hunt it out rather than waiting for it to come to me. Mm. I will hunt it out. And sometimes in my ride home in my truck to my, my house, I'll just put them on kind of reels and let them keep flowing. I don't watch mm-hmm. them. I just put my phone down and let it play through the Bluetooth. <laughs> and this one came up again. I've watched it many, many times. And like you said in the introduction, it's satirical. It's truth. They have these outlandish wigs on, which cracks me up in the first place. <laughs> And they're at a mall setting, which is, you know, adding a whole little commentary on life. And it's been my summation as a pastor and a professor of a college campus that this generation is locked more into these kind of over-identified, over-branded words. Okay. And so I don't remember that awkward phrase at all when we were growing up. No. I'm sure we had our others and you probably know them better than I do yeah. what they were, but I don't I don't remember awkward and what that meant. Mm-hmm. And and this what grabs me right away about this particular exchange, but many other words as well that we'll get to later, is how it automatically separates communication connection. If you label it even in a sarcastic manner in the in the video of the the clip. Mm. The one Peel who keeps turning to his other friends and using the words like awkward or so, you know, or any of those kind of things, it just severs true communication connection. It, it blocks interpersonal relationship. It blocks intimacy. It blocks acceptance and appreciation. So it's a funny clip. It's satirical, but it's also extremely important to me as a communication relational professor Mm. how vital these things are and how important they they are for us to recognize. We want to take a moment to say a quick thank you to our community for supporting our sponsor, The Wellness Company. We've been so thrilled to partner with their team of esteemed medical professionals, including Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. Harvey Risch, Dr. Drew Pinsky, and other truth-seeking doctors we can trust. Many of us are feeling some post-pandemic uncertainty, which makes perfect sense because now they're talking about this disease X that's supposedly about to break out at any time. But we can take charge of our health and prepare ourselves for natural disasters or man-made threats with the Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit. It's the ultimate safeguard for your family. The kit includes vital medications like ivermectin, amoxicillin, and z with a comprehensive guidebook researched and written by the company's chief medical board. Visit twc.health slash lovelife and use promo code lovelife for an exclusive 15% discount. That's twc.health slash lovelife and promo code lovelife, all one word, for 15% off your order. Well, what strikes me when you say that is something that comes from our field, shame, which is an important concept and very important construct for people to wrestle with, have especially if they have been raised in a context where they were not validated for the unique gift from God that they mm-hmm. are and did feel shame. I'm going to take that because you do hear a lot of body shaming, slut shaming. There's a lot. This has really entered the discourse, certainly mm-hmm. for Gen Z as we're speaking to right now. And I, while I don't think anyone, I don't think even friends that would go, that's awkward. 
But that's shaming. Mm -hmm. I mean, to use their own words, that's shaming. It's basically saying what you just said is unacceptable. It's cringy. It's awkward. It's cute. I don't know. They have some other words going on right now. Mm -hmm. I can't remember. They have something for millennials right now, Gen Z. But uh, so this the shame piece. And so to your point, it blocks, it separates. It's it's minimizing someone's statement. Mm -hmm. And in a generation that has been raised with all these self-help tools and this era of let's get rid of the stigma of mental illness and all these things that we would agree with, of course, as professionals in this field, it's interesting that some of what they're doing is actually heaping more shame onto each other. Yeah. So I'm, and that's kind of- And it, it's labeling. Seems, it's more and more labeling, more and more labeling. Yes, labeling. And, and the labeling just keeps, what happens to me, what happens in my estimation is the person might not have thought what they shared was awkward, but if a good friend says it's awkward, they then receive it and identify with it. And now if you do that often enough, they're walking around feeling awkward, self-identifying mm. as awkward, and now not being authentic and real in relationships. Mm -hmm. It's like the snowball of artificial mm -hmm. identification. Okay, that word right there is huge for me. The the phrase artificial identification? Yeah. Okay, if you use it, would you quote me then if you use it in publication or something? Of in your course, research? and I will cite you and I will give <laughs> you credit. Because, yeah. well, it's just, it's another layer to or another manifestation of what I, but just, just absolutely I bristle to is the DSM in general mm -hmm. because it just boxes you in. You have this, it's so fixed. There's no empowered ability yeah. to say, I'm going through a season of depression or a season of mm -hmm. anxiety or a season of pain or a season of confusion. No, no, no. Because that is what life is, by the way, a bunch yeah. of seasons. But instead, it's this label, to yeah. your point. And I believe, and we've discussed this extensively on the podcast and off, that much of what's happening serves other entities. It serves, I mean, frankly, forget big pharma, big therapy, people benefit if people always think I have anxiety and I will always need to be in therapy also on drugs for it. Mm -hmm. So this, and it's an artificial identification. It is not how you were born. You were born in God's image. You are born to, yes, struggle, but we know that our struggles give us depth and character and teach us lessons. God didn't intend for us not to struggle in different realms, but to continue to move through and to lean on him. So that artificial identification, I think, can be incredibly disempowering. Yeah. Read Romans 5, Colossians 3, these lists that Paul uses when he's teaching us that we will suffer in this life, right? Yes. Whether you're a believer in Christ right. or not, you will suffer. Right. This world is hard. A lot of sin yeah. and a lot of darkness. But Paul in his systematic theology is always building upon things. Peter does the same thing in 1 Peter 2. Just builds on the suffering leads to perseverance, leads to encouragement, leads to yeah. strength. And you know what's usually at the end of Paul's list is hope. That you actually mm. have to go through these things yeah. to really have true authentic hope that's based on something real and foundational, not just this fantasical, oh, things will kind of get better someday. Well, no, Paul's yeah. saying you got to be intentional. Paul says, work out your salvation, right? Work and so out, you and yeah. I are talking about this concept for this generation we love and that my four kids are in and yeah. all my adopted kids are in, right? <laughs> and so we love this generation. We want to encourage them. We want them to understand that these artificial identifications hurt them. That's right. Right, And it hurts That's their right. relationships and they already struggle so much with true social intimacy because everything's artificial through Snap yeah. and through Insta and all these variables. It's interesting. I was just coming in this morning when I came in early at work and I always pass a couple big crowded classrooms on the first floor here. And most of the time 
I'm here early. And most time the students that are waiting for their eight o'clock class, I, I swear to you, 20 out of the 25 that I can see are on their phones immediately. Yeah. Like incapable of moments of just, hey, good to see you this morning. How are you doing? Right. right. There's no social scripts anymore of just right. generic hello. It's not uncommon for <laughs> seniors to tell me, I didn't even know that person was a major with me. And I'd say something like, I've had both of you in the same class together wow. four or five times. Oh, did they not sit near me? I'm like, no, they sat in the back and you were in the front. But either way, we've had group mm -hmm. discussions where you're, you're right. So we just miss it. And mm -hmm. so this awkwardness and this artificial identification and labeling things, which might be just simple, a little bit of shyness or a little bit of reservedness or someone's over the top too much on the other side, right? We have like no wiggle room anymore for individual experience and individual exploration and expression. It's like, if you don't fit a certain tiny little box that social media tells us is what's good, then, mm. and then you're awkward, then you're anxious. And it strikes me also, as we're talking about this, that, and we've talked about this before as well, and I need to see the latest research because I'm quite sure it's still coming out, that we have the ability to connect through this little magical device in our pocket at all times. And we've used this, you've, you've seen clients all over the world by virtue mm -hmm. of the podcast. So it's a beautiful technology that allows us to, to, to connect, to cross these barriers, oceans. Mm -hmm. And yet we find that the generation that grew up with this technology in their pocket at all times are the most lonely. They are the most lonely. They're the, they feel less connected. And to your point, they're not using their in-person, their IRL interactions to actually form those just normal social bonds. And so it's, and so I, and again, I want to say right now, I know that when this conversation comes up, we, you're Gen X and you think you had everything right when you were, listen, we didn't deal with this. So I have a lot of empathy and heart for this basically wild frontier of technology. Mm -hmm. Parents were giving kids phones before they had any idea of what that would mean for their psyche, for their cognitive development, for their social development. It was unknown territory. So I have a heart for the parents who maybe didn't know how to discipline their kids with this or pr provide limits or provide boundaries. I have a heart for the kids who were just like, well, I don't know, it's fun. I mean, it's fun. So I'm on my phone all the time. My sadness is that we are really... And this gets back to the clip, to the to the bit, the key and peel. We're really messing with humanity, mm -hmm. ultimately. I don't think that that's hyperbolic to say. Mm -hmm. It, it was, uh, struck me when you said technology allows us to talk to people across the ocean. And we're actually getting a generation that's more comfortable doing that than talking to someone sitting right, right next to them. Right. And that creates a real gap in relational and social community and feeling togetherness. You see that in a church body, you see it in a school body, you see it in a corporation body, all of it. And it's interesting too, that high powered companies, you know, the top level Fortune 500 companies are now recreating true community spaces in their work environments because people aren't getting them on their own. Wow. Right. Elias getting ready to start this new job with yeah. uh, that massive company. I just lost the name TQL mm -hmm. total, whatever logistics. And mm -hmm. he was showing me their headquarters in the Milford, Ohio area and really amazing building, 233,000 square feet, cafeteria, mm -hmm. ping pong room, pool room, exploration room, 24 hour facility, weight room facility and workout facility. That looks like LA fitness. 
And they're building that community because people don't do it on their own anymore. Right. You just can't have this office cu- office cubicle next to the other person and feel like there's going to be a relationship. It might not be. Right. So yeah. I just, it was cool to see that. I know that's not brand new. Other companies have been doing that. It's just it, yeah. it's highlighted based on what we're talking about. I just looked at it yesterday. I think it's beneficial. Well, that's encouraging. It is. To know that- it. Someone out there in the, especially in big business, which sometimes can be painted as like, oh, they're just out there to make money. But obviously happy employees and employees that are socially savvy, mm-hmm. employees who can make connections, employees who feel appreciated will be better product. It, it's a win-win. Yeah. You'll still make more money, big business, and your employees will have a happier life and a more well-rounded and emotionally healthy life as well. Yeah. We'd love to connect with you further via our weekly newsletter. Joining the Love & Life family gets you first access to bonus content and flash sale pricing for books and consultations. And when you sign up, you'll receive Karen's Empowered Dating Playbook or my Empowered Marriage Playbook. Head over to loveandlifemedia.com to join the Love & Life family. So Karen, another word that I think my students are using in an over-identified negative way that I've started to champion the reframe in my classes. In fact, I've done it in two of them this week. Is students all the time talk about overthinking. Okay. And and they use that term very negatively and condemn themselves. So I remind them that over there's really no such thing as overthinking. I think I read that in Bessel's book. I read it in one of the trauma books I've been reading over the last couple of months, or it might even been in the um the book on estrangement you gave me over Christmas that I read quickly. So I don't, it's somewhere tied in there anyway. So there's really no such thing as overthinking. It's our brain doing its job. Mm -hmm. So when we obsess on something or think negatively on something, yeah, then we're not doing what scripture says, taking our thoughts captive, making sure we're having positive movements. Even if we have to recognize, Oh, I jacked up or I said something stupid. That's not overthinking. That's making an acknowledgement and understanding. The overthinking, what my students are talking about, is now I'm shaming myself for the next three days. Mm. And so I'm reframing the overthinking to say, really, research says we don't even use our whole brain. So you can't be overthinking because mm-hmm. you're not exaggerating or exasperating your brain power. Rather to reframe as I'm thinking incorrectly. Or I'm thinking negatively when I need to think more neutrally. Or how can I recognize that, hey, I'm struggling in this area, so now I'm going to think about it differently. Mm-hmm. So I'm just trying, I've just seen it so much, all the general reports I make students do, I, literally it's in at least 60 to 70% of every single journal report. Even if I'm not asking students to judge themselves or assess themselves, it's almost always in there. I just overthink this. I'm always overthinking that. Um, and it's linked into anxiety. And so they're always mm-hmm. saying like, this is just what I do when I'm anxious. And I'm like, no, that's not true. We're overthinking all the time. It's just how we're thinking, what we're thinking about that leads to this artificial identification, our Mm -hmm. shameful, false uh, report of self that overthinking is somehow now negative, right? What would our forefathers say? Overthinking led to the Constitution, led to the Declaration (laughs) of Independence, right? Overthinking led to our, our country. When did it move from processing to overthinking. And yes, in the psych literature, there's a whole body of research on ruminating. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that gets into maybe what they think they're doing, which ruminating is related to depression. I've looked into that literature when I was ruminating over some breakups over the years. And I remember 
thinking I was at a conference and I was like, I think I'm ruminating. I've moved from processing to try to find psychological flexibility. Is there a way for me to view this? Yeah. If I messed up, I can view it as like, gosh, that's unfortunate. I did that. That That's, that's regrettable. I need to apologize, make amends. And then I need to reframe this as what did I learn from this? Instead of going, beating myself yeah. up, like you said, shaming myself, like I am the worst person because I said that mean thing or I did that stupid thing. Where did it come from a healthy processing to kind of make sense of our world and our experiences and what we did and understand ourselves better and move forward in a more positive manner? When did it become processing move to overthinking, do you think? I, uh, I'm curious what you I don't know. When I came back to Judson in 15, 14 and 15, okay. that's when I first started to hear it all the time when I came mm -hmm. back to work in the counseling center here. And that, that I was going out and, and teaching in churches in the community about the pandemic of anxiety and depression before the pandemic yes. of COVID came, <laughs> right? And so I was linking this kind of phraseology and terminology mm -hmm. in those lectures in 16 mm -hmm. and 17 and 18 and 19. And so that's when I was addressing it in one-on-one -on -one clinical settings and yeah. in our group settings when we had groups there at the Wellness Center, which we hope to move back to soon. But in that capacity, Karen, that's when I saw it, but you know, I went from church work and back into college work. And so maybe it was already out there in the vernacular, out there in the movement. But I, mm -hmm. I think your, your beautiful, gentle reframe simply from overthinking to processing is, is wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, I use that. I'm speaking on overcoming pain and trauma this Monday at City Line Church here in the city. And I'm using that frequently as I go through the steps of grieving and go through the steps of forgiveness. I'm using the term processing mm -hmm. rather than shaming, overthinking, beating myself up, any of those other frameworks that are kind of the same thing. We're just talking mm -hmm. about if we're going to label it, label mm -hmm. it as processing, which is a very neutral term, and then say I'm processing. If you have to say something like I'm processing some legitimate trauma in my life, that's great. Yeah. That's so much better than I'm overthinking the trauma in my life. How can you overthink trauma? It's, right. it's devastating, right? Right. Uh, and, and again, to think somehow that thinking a lot is poor, the Bible's full of right. be sober-minded, think through, be diligent. Yes. Right. And so we need a nation of overthinkers. We just want to overthink <laughs> in the right way. Yeah. Well, I think about when I was teaching school counselors and community mental health counselors at Concordia years ago, and we would have many, many conversations about being a reflective practitioner, that you are a reflective counselor. And they were asked to reflect on all kinds of content they were learning and also to prepare themselves to be reflective in their professions. So when a student comes and talks to them, they reflect later after that session. That's why we have case notes. and we. So it's interesting that we've, again, got, put this rigid, rigid label and then painted overthinking as bad instead of saying, I'm, my, mind's, my mind is active. It's a gift from God that I'm active, that we're cerebral, that we can make sense of our world and to encourage ourselves to do that. And I do agree, yes, at times, perhaps th some of these kids have moved into ruminating. Mm -hmm. And as we said, that's not healthy. But once we find that we're doing that, then we need to go to our CBT and our ACT. And we have two options, our CBT, you know, and I'll just reiterate for anyone who's new to the podcast, you and I love CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. So it's the cognitive, you take charge of your thoughts. <laughs> you take charge of your life. Our father told us to take charge, to get happy. That's simplistic, but there's a lot of truth to both of those. And we will identify irrational thinking. We'll identify cognitive distortions. Where is that ruminating now leading us into 
really lies that we're telling ourselves. Being irrational, it's a lie. And I like to duke it out, Albert Ellis style, REBT, so rational emotive behavior therapy allows me to identify an irrational thought and then go, uh, I dispute that. <laughs> I disagree with you. You know, like the angel and the devil in your mind. And you that's my preferred way. But there's also act for some of you who maybe like that feels too combative in your mind. I can understand that act. And we've got episodes that we actually several years ago were able to speak with the founder, Dr. Stephen C. Hayes of ACT. It's a more, maybe perhaps a more gentle approach where you try to get some distance from your thoughts. Once you identify that you're ruminating to the point that it's not healthy, Mm -hmm. you get some distance. All of this to say that just a label of, this is what I do when I'm anxious, overthinking. I am anxious. I don't like that either. I don't like to put anything I am that isn't empowering and from God. Mm -hmm. So I don't believe God designed us to be anxious. So I'm not going to say I am anxious. I may say I have a season of anxiety like we've talked about. So find those tools and please use this podcast. I know it would be scrolling back at this point because we're up almost to 300 episodes, but there are tools and resources to help you if you have caught yourself, found yourself constrained by these labels you're putting on yourself, like overthinking and anxiety. And taking the power out of the word to hurt you. Yes. Right. The word is supposed to encourage us. Uh, Ephesians 5 talks about washing. It's talking in a husband-wife category, but it fits for everybody. Washing with the word, cleansing and encouraging. So one of the things I did with my personality class last night is I reminded them of what I've taught them about anxiety, that we can't give the capital A anxiety power to mean 35 different things. So we talk about being nervous instead or anticipating. And so I think you're saying the exact same thing with overthinking. And I didn't link that last night and I will next class. We can talk about ruminating. We can talk about obsessing. We can talk mm-hmm. about reflecting. Mm-hmm. We can talk about processing. Mm-hmm. Don't label it all overthinking. The whole experience of college is to become an overthinker. To be a critical, critical minded thinker. thinker. A critical. Yeah. And even if we identify some obsessing or overthinking, ruminating rather, we don't stay there. Right. It, we don't accept it. That This is the piece that, that str- I struggle with, this acceptance. Well, that's just the way I am. And I don't know if it's just dad and mom. Just <laughs> It wasn't our way. We were not permitted to. Ex- if you don't like it, you change it. I mean, yeah. you, if you're not good with it, then you go protest. <laughs> yeah. Dad was out there picketing with the AAUP, and I was picketing myself recently. Well, he so- picketed <laughs> all about the Wendy's coming to town, and I was mad at him. I'm like, I want the Wendy's to come to Clifton. No, that was a bad call. We did not need the Wendy's. No, we needed the Wendy's in Ludlow. We did not need, we had it up at Calhoun. We did not this need one. Before the biggie bag, baggy big, biggie bag, whatever it is, but I still loved Wendy's. I, <laughs> I didn't like him picketing about that one. We like the single cheese ketchup onion. That's, that's a good call we, right there. That's what you and I always <laughs> had. <laughs> but it, that's one of the times that. I disagree with dad's protest. I'm like, dad, come on. The well, Wendy's would be closer. You were hungry. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> you just wanted it a burger. It was right on the way, right on the way to school. I could have picked it up on the way home all the You're time. Totally right to do. Anyway, my point is, we don't sit with it. We don't accept it. We we look to our hope and our salvation. Salvation isn't just that I gave my life to Jesus. I'm going to heaven. That is great. But my salvation is every day. I look to my Savior mm-hmm. for liberation. The truth will set us free. And, the truth is not that we are confined yeah. by these identities. And that's what you're speaking to here with overthinking. If you're interested in processing further as you align your mind, body, and spirit, we're here for you. Head over to loveandlifemedia.com and click on the Work With Us tab. There you can book individual or couples sessions. We'd love to work with you. 
Sign up at loveandlifemedia.com. Another one. Any others that come to mind? Well, I think the big three for me, we've hit. Awkward, anxiousness, and overthinking. Those are probably the three right now that are the most Mm -hmm. determined. And we're not even getting into gender (laughs) labeling and all that stuff we could do on a different episode. But there's similarities. You're going down a different road now. (laughs) Well, there's similarities, I think, in why we self-identify in certain ways. We're trying Mm -hmm. to have this label create something in us or help us to feel identified in ways that aren't always healthy and in a way that's going to actually encourage us to get the freedom we're looking for, no matter what the scenario is. Anyway, let's wrap this one up with the, yeah. what happens at the end of the key and peel skit. Yes. Is the more key keeps getting frustrated by peel and his buddies having to turn and make these sidebar comments. Uh, you've heard the visual now through the podcast, but please watch the visual because it makes a big difference. Because <laughs> they're hilarious. And so, he finally gets so exasperated and he keeps saying, don't look at them. Look at me. Don't look at them. Look at me. I'm right here. I'm right here. I'm right here. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's such a strong, again, satirical commentary on mm-hmm. not only this generation, the younger generation, but all of life right now, the common decency to put your phone down and look someone in the eye. Mm. I challenge my students all the time when we break into groups, they'll be sitting next to each other and they don't turn and face each other. They just, they just talk kind of out of the side of their mouth. And I'm like, this is not how we're trained. This is not how we talk about turn and face each other, give each other that common connection and decency. So it, it it's kind of a intangible part of this block and this mm-hmm. lack of intimacy connection and socialization where we feel awkward because mm-hmm. we're not doing basic primal relational one-on-one. Look at somebody when they talk to you, call them by name, yeah. uh, learn their name, not that kid sitting over there that you've been in 12 classes with now, right? Yeah. And trying to build some basic commonality and humanity mm. so we don't feel so lonely and isolated. Mm-hmm. It's amazing to me on a campus of 800 undergrads and 400 postgrads here that we have hundreds walking around lonely. Yeah. It's one of the most extroverted experiences in life is your college campus. And I, my experience was it was easier to meet close friends in a smaller context, which seemed a little counterintuitive, but I just from friends that went to larger schools, it seemed that some of our connections were tighter. So this, this, the fewer, I don't know if that's, I don't have any research to back that up, but I mean, this is one of the reasons you have smaller contexts within big mm-hmm. schools, like sororities and so forth to, to create that. And so they have this and yet they're not availing themselves to this. And you talked about coming back after a number of years. And after I stepped away from Concordia, then came back to substitute for you one one night. And it would maybe have been five years since I'd been in front of a classroom. And it was astounding, the difference. Mm. I was not getting any, the kind of feedback I was used to as a professor who was always highly animated. I'm just, I get on the podium and I'm just go for it. And I was used to a lot of engagement mm-hmm. and it was like crickets. And I remember talking to you and then I actually went home to see mom and Austin was there and I said, oh, that was rough. I don't, I think I lost it. I don't think I'm interesting anymore. And Austin's like, oh, no, no, no. It's totally a generational shift that's happening. And I thought, I wonder if it's because they're used to, these young kids are used to consuming content from a YouTube video. Mm-hmm. Well, there's no interaction there. You just watch it and this expert or this person this that you're looking to learn from tells you the things and you go, and you blankly look at the screen 
and you don't yeah, there's no give and take. Mm-hmm. And I thought, man, did they consume me mm-hmm. th- and consume my information much like they would a YouTube video? That was the only thing I could say because I don't think I'm boring, Elliot. I am no. so not boring. But I have felt that. I walked away from that class feeling like, dang, that was like like that dropped like lead. So it's similar to what you're saying. Now that was from the the classroom context, mm-hmm. and then and then Key and Peel are, and it's really sad. Here they were just a couple of friends in the in the skit, and the one friend's begging for connect. See me, yeah. here, honor me. I am a human being in front of you, and yet that pull to the phone in many cases is too strong. Yeah, and it's again, the these young people exponential representation of what you experienced. And they did, I told you this for feedback, they did really enjoy your lecture and your presentations. You just had no way of knowing it. There wasn't a natural feedback loop or even the context of, oh, there's a guest speaker. It's actually Pastor Elliot's sister. So I should probably be go more out of my way to thank her for coming and just social graces, none of it. And so my classes get there. It's just a lot more work than it used to be. Back when mm. I taught your class back in 92 or something, first of all, I knew, yeah. I knew Happy anyway, but right, there was all that natural rhythm to it. Yeah. Now you have to really create it and, and it takes some time and important things for me to demonstrate to them as I learn their name very, very quickly. Mm. I know about their major. If they're playing any sports, I'm reading everyday updates about how their team's doing, what's going so I can be tangibly connected. It's not hard for me to do it sports, but in that whole realm, it's just working a little bit extra harder. It would only take you another class and a half. You'd have been right there and had normal engagement. You just had to work harder to get it and to model to them, this is how we do this. So my heart is, and you've explained it so gently and empathically, my heart is that our young people who we love so so dearly would feel interested in stepping into a little bit more flexibility with their technology use, with their ways of interacting on a human to human basis on the daily. And yet I wonder if, if they listen to this, Elliot, are they going, are they feeling defensive or like, Hey, it's not my fault. I wasn't, it's not my fault. I was raised with a phone and, and that that's my comfort. It's not my fault that I feel social anxiety. That's another one that's come up all of a sudden. Everyone's got social anxiety. When it's called, yeah, you walk into a room full of strangers, most people are a little apprehensive. Mm-hmm. They don't know what they're stepping into. So I wonder if we should ask a Gen Zer to listen to this and then... Well, I'm, I'm going to require it. Whenever Tim gets it out, if it's next week or the next week after, I'm going to require my personality class to listen and reflect and report on it. And I would love to have an interview with them. And is someone who'd be say, I mean, I can imagine there's things that when I was young, I would like look back at like the fifties and be like, oh, there's some cool things about that era. I wonder if they see it that way. If they're, or if they're just like, these Gen Xers are judging us. You know, that's not where our hearts are, but I can understand that they might feel that. I would hope that this could be received with the intention that it is being given, which is love, grace, unity, humanity. That's really our intention. I just hope that that can be received that way. So I'll be. It doesn't matter what generation we're from. This is still baseline, foundational, interpersonal communication relationship skills. So all of us need the reminder. We're just saying we see it in this younger generation a lot stronger and it's really not their fault. It's what they've been brought up in and that's right. And, and the numbing of technology, the numbing of relationship, the numbing of communication connection and it, it you know the research does say clearly it puts you like in a trance 
And it's hard to get in that oh, yeah. trance mode and scroll for 30 minutes and then class comes and all of a sudden engage with your professor because you now put your brain into a parasympathetic response time. And it bears repeating that the research shows that the amount of screen time, doesn't matter what kind of screen you're in front of, is positively correlated with depression and anxiety. So when you talked about that epidemic mm -hmm. of depression and anxiety, it absolutely has has become more exponentially a, a reality in our culture based on screen usage. Yeah. And that's something that is knowledge is power. And it's one of the reasons that I've struggled with social media myself, because I'm thinking I sit here and tell people to put down their phones. And yet here I'm like, here's a post. Yeah. <laughs> so it's something that I'm still working out and we're working out as a love and life community. But Elliot, thank you for this. I hope that this is helpful, not only for our Gen Zers, but for our millennials, for our boomers, for all of the above. Give us some words of prayer to empower us to have liberation from some of these constraints. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to talk through fundamental aspects of relationship, community, communication, intimacy that are all keenly linked to your word and your desire for us as your image bearers, as your ambassadors, as the ones who are to carry your word, your light, your truth, your love to humanity. So Father, we ask for reflection for all of us to kind of review and assess the power we give words, the way we need to reframe things, Lord, so we can be encouraged and inspired we can apply positive reframing and processing and healing and growth and not, Lord, feel that we're just walking around as awkward and anxious overthinkers. Lord, your word even tells us that to be fearful and to be anxious and to worry is a sin. That we are to have an abundant life of freedom and faith and joy and positivity. And so this is a difficult topic for any generation, all the people, Lord, but we feel it even more cleanly, keenly or observe it more keenly with the high school, college populations now. So we pray for wisdom, discernment, and teaching and modeling and sharing. And may these words we shared today and talk through in that wonderful skit by Key and Peel be a poignant blessing and challenge and conviction. May we communicate more wisely, with great discernment, with great wisdom, and enjoy the fruit of relationship and communication. Amen. Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson-Abril.